Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. You're about to hear a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. Our desire is to follow Jesus, love others well, and experience the life that is truly life. These sermons help form us into the kind of people God created us to be. With grace and patience, we live with hope-filled lives here in Phoenix. We hope this message inspires you. If you have any questions or things we can pray for, feel free to reach out to us at info at desertcitychurch.com. In the 6th century BC, in Athens, a great plague broke out and swept through the city. Many people lost their lives, their jobs, trade was halted, and the prestigious Athenians were left trying to figure out what to do next. Seeking a remedy, they went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked for help. The oracle sent them to the island of Crete, where they would find a man named Epimenides, who was a magical Greek poet. Epimenides shows up in Athens and he assesses the situation, tries to figure out what to do to kind of flatten the curve of this plague. And he looks around after taking his assessment, and he says, I know what needs to happen. And the Athenians say, what in the world? What? What do we need to do? And Epimenides tells them, well, it's pretty obvious that the gods here are angry. And the Athenians said, well, the gods are angry, of course. Which ones? And Epimenides says, I don't know. You have hundreds of gods here. And so the Athenians said, well, what do we need to do to make the gods happy again? And Epimenides says, I'm not sure, but let me come up with a plan. So he goes to the sacred mountain in the middle of Athens called the Areopagus. And at the Areopagus, there's this special court that was held there. Some of the, the, the wise council of Athens is meeting on top of this hill. And Epimenides says, I have a plan to appease the gods to get rid of the plague. And he brings hundreds of sheep onto this hill. And then he tells the people of Athens, here's what we're going to do. We're not sure what gods are angry So we're going to release all of these sheep, and they're going to spread out all over Athens and follow them. And when the sheep get tired and decide to lay down and take a nap or go to sleep, wherever the sheep are, slay the sheep at that spot. Sacrifice them and build an altar. And look around. If you can see one of your temples to all of these different gods that you have here, sacrifice the sheep in the name of that god, build an altar to that god, whether it's Zeus or Ares or Aphrodite, and then we'll be able to know which gods are angry. So they do this, and the Athenians follow the sheep around, and as the sheep lay down, they, they, they slay the sheep, they sacrifice the sheep. Uh, well, there was a bunch of sheep that went to this certain spot where there was no other temples in sight. And so as the sheep lay down, the Athenians show up, they sacrifice the sheep, and they look around, they don't see anything, so they build an altar. And since they didn't know who to build the altar for, they build an altar to an unknown God. And sure enough, right after they do this with the sacrificing of all the sheep, the the curve starts to kind of flatten with this plague in Athens. And before you know it, people start to heal from the plague, the plague goes away, and life goes back to normal. So why tell this story on Easter? In the midst of this pandemic, uh, does it mean that we need to go find a magical Greek poet, maybe bring him to our city to help us get rid of this? No, that's obviously not what we're trying to do here. But what's interesting about this story is about 500 years later, There's this man named Paul who strolls into Athens. And this man, Paul, is a follower 
of Jesus. And as he goes into Athens, uh, it's not a whole lot long after Jesus had, had come and lived on earth and, and gone to the cross and, and rose from the dead. And so Paul has become a follower of him. His life has been transformed by Jesus. And he's going around to all these different places, leading this movement of churches, these Jesus followers, proclaiming exactly what Jesus has done in this world. And the story is told in Acts chapter 17, some 500 years after this plague just ravages Athens. And I want to read this story today for Easter. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 17, we'll start in verse 16. It says that while Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So in this story, Paul has gone ahead of his friends. He's in Athens. He's waiting for his friends to catch up. He's all alone. He's looking around the city. He's so distressed at all the gods, and he starts this conversation. Verse 18, it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers show up with their wine and cheese, and they begin having this debate with, with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So in this story, this conversation breaks out. Paul's talking to the Jews at the synagogue. Uh, then these philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, Uh, show up, this debate breaks out, they all are having these conversations, and we find that the conversations are all initiated because Paul is preaching about the good news of Jesus and resurrection. If you have your Bibles with you, you can circle those words and those phrases, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, in this story, if he's talking to these uh, philosophers, there's a couple things that are important to note about the Epicureans. The Epicureans... um, that, that, that wine and cheese comment is true. Uh, a few things that they believed. Uh, the first is that Epicureans believed that everything happened by chance, that this world was random, there was no one really pulling the strings on anything, just life was just completely, completely random. They believed that death was the end of all, there's no afterlife, and so once you're gone, you're gone. Um, they believed that the gods were these kind of remote, uh, beings out in some other world that weren't really intervening in what was happening uh, here on earth. And then they believed that pleasure was the chief end of man. Not necessarily like in uh, having physical pleasure, but for them the highest form of pleasure was that which brought about no pain. So if you could go through life limiting your pain as much as you can, that was what pleasure was. And if you could just live your life trying to avoid pain at all costs, that was kind of the purpose of life. And then there were the Stoics, and they were a little bit different than the Epicureans. The Stoics uh, were, were people who, uh, they, they kind of believed that uh, everything, everything was God. Everything was ordained by God. There were no real decisions that they could make. Um, that everything was just supposed to happen to you. And so whatever was happening to you, um, so much of like the way that they would reason with the good things and the bad things that were happening is that, that you would just endure all circumstances by removing your emotions from it. So therefore, if you're going through something 
painful. Uh, you would just endure the pain uh, with not having any feelings. You would become stoic about it. You would become stoic about it. And they, they just didn't, didn't believe that like, there were really any choices in this world. Just everything was kind of like this preordained thing that if you would just travel through life not allowing your emotions to get wrapped up in the story that's unfolding, uh, that was kind of the purpose in life. Uh, there, there's a poem that was written by William Ernest Henley um, called Invictus. And, and it, it's a poem that I used to like, really like. I would be inspired by it. But that it really kind of uh, summarizes the thought of the Stoics. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You have the Epicureans, you have the Stoics, and they're here and they're debating Paul. So then the story goes on, it says, they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know that this new teaching that you are preaching, we want to know more of it. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they're interested in what Paul has to say. And then this last line, Luke kind of delivers it. It kind of feels like, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a snideness to, to Luke's comment. Like the Luke is the, the author of this, this text. And what we know about Luke is he's a doctor, he's extremely smart, and he's like not having the intellectualism of Athens. So he says, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they're at the Areopagus, and Paul in verse 22 says this. It says that Paul then stood up in the meeting in the Areopagus, and he said to the people, so he's on this hill in the middle of Athens at this court, and he's about to give this sermon, and they're wanting to hear from him. He says, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The altar of the unknown God. So as, as Paul is walking around Athens, he's seeing the remnants of this thing that happened 500 years ago. This altar that was built in the plague of the 6th century when, when they, this sheep was killed and they built this altar to the unknown God. And what Paul says is, I, what I know is that you are a religious people. Everybody believes in something. But the thing that this was sacrificed or whatever happened here, this, this unknown God that you sacrificed to, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this thing known to you, who this God is. Verse 24 goes on to say, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul says that there's this God who has created the earth, and he not only creates life, he gives life, he sustains life. Verse 26 says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. What's interesting is that last line, uh, scholars didn't really understand this for a long time, but he says, as some of your poets have said, he's actually quoting Epimenides, the, the Greek, the magical Greek poet that I can't pronounce his name. He's actually quoting him here, but he's using it in the context now of the living God that he knows. For in him we live and move and have our being. And then he goes on to quote some other poet that I can't pronounce as well. He says, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, verse 29, we should not think that the divine being is like a gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when we will judge, he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof to this by everyone, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. Well, that's the language of resurrection. Remember this whole conversation between Paul and the Athenians started because of two things. He was talking about resurrection and he was talking about the good news of Jesus. Well, what is this good news? What is uh, this, this good news of Jesus that Paul is proclaiming here that has got everyone so interested. Well, good news uh, is, uh, another word for it is gospel. And what gospel literally means is that it's good news about a victory that had been won. This is kind of like Roman imperial language. Uh, oftentimes when a battle would happen with their legions in some far off place, they would come back with this gospel message, this declaration, this proclamation that a victory had been won. And the early church was using this to talk about the victory that Jesus had won on the cross. That there was this gospel message, this good news of victory had been won. In some of other Paul's writings, uh, what we find is this kind of an explanation, more clarity around what this good news of Jesus is. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1, Paul writes this when he talks about the good news of Jesus. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to our scriptures. And then that he appeared to Cephas, to, to, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
then to all the apostles. And at last he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul expounds on this idea of what the good news of Jesus is. And he talks about that Christ died for the sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried and he was raised again on the third day. Now, remember the story starts with these sheep that are dying in Athens. Well, sheep are also significant for the Hebrews. Uh, For God's people in the Old Testament, they have a sheep story as well, and it's much older than the Athenian story. It goes all the way back, uh, thousands of years back, to when they were slaves in Egypt. And if you remember kind of the the sheep story for the Hebrews as they're slaves in Egypt, uh, what we find is that they're crying out for, for God to deliver them from the oppressive Egypt, Egyptian empire. And God hears them crying out in their slavery. He hears them and he intervenes. Uh, We know the story of Moses. Uh, With that come all these plagues. The Egyptians are trying to figure out whether or not they want to keep fighting this or let them go. Finally, this one plague comes and it's what is called the angel of death or the angel of God's justice. And he's going to come and take out the firstborn of all the families in Egypt. But God's people know because they are told and warned that if you do this thing, this angel of justice will pass you over to take lamb's blood, to make a sacrifice, and then to take this lamb's blood and just wipe it on the doorpost of your home. And if you do that, this angel of justice will pass over your home. And after that, the Egyptians are finally shaken loose and God's people are able to leave When you think about this, sheep who die for a plague for the Greeks, sheep that die for the Hebrews, their blood sprinkled on the doorposts of their houses. It it sounds archaic. It sounds like mythology. Like this isn't real, right? Like this is kind of like old hokey religion. What in the world is going on here? But for the Israelites, it was symbolic of something else that was going to happen, some future lamb that was going to be slain. God had this other plan that was, was going to happen, that, that the things that enslaved people's hearts to sin, God was going to deliver them by another type of sacrifice, another type of lamb that was coming into the world to be sacrificed. And this lamb, as Paul points out, is Jesus on the cross that Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins in the world. Now, this is a a story that is old, that some of you who have grown up at church probably know and recognize. Some of you who, uh, you know, maybe have never grown up in the church, you think, what in the world is going on here? It just sounds so strange. Like, why would a sacrifice of a lamb forgive sins? And and, and why would God want that? Why would God need for a sacrificial lamb? Um, lamb to come so that he could forgive sins. If he's God, can't he just forgive sins by saying it? I mean, when it comes to me, when it comes to, to me wanting to forgive somebody, if someone's done something wrong to me, I could just tell them, you're forgiven. So why doesn't God do it? Why is it that something has to die? Why is it that something has to suffer? If I'm able to forgive, then why does God require this sacrifice? This is a question that is good to consider. And and, and here's what I would say to that. Here's what forgiveness demands. Forgiveness costs something. And so to just say that you were going to forgive someone, you could say that, but if you have been really hurt by someone, if you've been betrayed, 
if you've been abused, if you've been lied to, if you've been treated very poorly, if you've been deeply wounded, you know that you can't just say that you're going to forgive someone. And if you're being honest and, and, and truthful with yourself, you know that even after you say that you have forgiven them, it doesn't just make everything go away. There's still, uh, there's still feelings of bitterness. There's still feelings of pain. There's still feelings of resentment towards the person that has hurt you. And so even though you say that you're forgiving someone, you're realizing that this hasn't just made things go away. All the pain is still here. And the reason why is that the words that we use to forgive, words are not the currency of forgiveness. Pain is the currency of forgiveness. And here's what I mean. When we, when we use our words, we could say that we're forgiving someone, but to actually forgive someone, you have to absorb a hurt that has been done to you. You have to take pain that someone has given to you and decide or choose not to return the pain to them. And in order to do that, you have to bear the pain. And for some people who have been deeply wounded by others, by some just horrific acts that have happened, but have been able to move on in forgiveness, would tell you that it's an extremely difficult and painful thing to do. Because forgiveness requires a cost of pain. To absorb pain, to have pain brought upon you and not return it, and is in itself painful. And I think that most people would be honest about that and say, I've been able to get through some things that are, have been really bad that have happened to me in this life. I've been able to, to bring about forgiveness, but it cost me something. It cost me something that was extremely painful. And if, if we can feel that, whenever we, whenever we decide to forgive someone, we're absorbing pain, and our compassionate hearts are able to do that, how much more with God whose heart is so much more compassionate than us, whose heart desires to be rec have reconciliation with us, to be in relationship with us, how much more would it cost God, who has had so many worse things happen to him and our actions towards him? For God, pain is the currency of forgiveness, which means what we see in the cross, the, the pain that God goes through on the cross, the suffering that leads to his death shows us that he's willing to spend an abundance of pain on us. The cross is where God lavishes his love on us through his pain to bear the weight of forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus suffers greatly. And yet on the cross, we have a chance, an opportunity for reconciliation with God because of that sacrifice. Words are not the currency of forgiveness. Pain is the currency of forgiveness. And what the cross tells us is that you are worth the cost. God loves you so much. Now this is a message that maybe you growing up in the church you've heard or maybe it's a message that is brand new to you. It's a message that we're reminded of, that we experience divine forgiveness. 
And maybe today you've never experienced divine forgiveness from God. Maybe today uh, is a time uh, where, you, where you need to just allow God's forgiveness to just come into your life, to fill your heart. God has spent lavishly on you out of his love. The currency of forgiveness is pain, and that's what we see in the cross. And this is a God who is willing to forgive and pursue you and love you. The good news of Jesus is that he spent his life on the cross out of forgiveness so that we can have life with him. And then it talks about this idea of resurrection. So the pain that happens on the cross, uh, the pain that leads to the suffering and death of Jesus, here's what resurrection tells us about it, is that, that the pain that is spent for forgiveness and the suffering and the death of Jesus don't have the last word. With resurrection, the pain and the suffering and the death are transformed into something brand new. As Jesus rises from the dead on the third day, as Jesus comes out of the tomb conquering death, all of the pain and suffering have been transformed into glory. He appears to the disciples in one of the story, and they could still see the scars in his hands and on his side. Those scars have been turned to glory. Resurrection means that death does not have this final word, that there is a new body, a new creation, new hope. There's an old uh, German pastor, an author, who wrote this about resurrection. He says that resurrection changes everything because it reconfigures the way we understand our lives. If our lives end in death, and if death is something completely distinct from life, then what difference does our impending death make for our present lives. But if our future involves resurrection, then our future life completely determines the reality of our present life. We are people who will be resurrected. So we have this understanding of the good news of Jesus, that he paid the ultimate price to forgive us, and that we have this hope that is in resurrection, which allows us to travel through this life so much differently, no matter what we're going through. Here's how the story ends uh, in Athens. It says this in verse 32. After Paul has kind of given the speech about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection, it says that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, and then some people became followers of Paul and believed, and among them is Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. After Paul kind of gives this message, there's three responses. Some people sneer at the message of resurrection. Then there's other people that are interested, in, and they want to know more about it. They say, Paul, we want to hear more on this. We'll have you back. We want to know what else is going on here. And then there's some people, Dionysus and Damaris, that we find actually follow Paul, therefore following Jesus. This is a message that demands a response from us. And I wonder what it means for us today. 
wherever you're at, in your home, wherever you're watching? How do you respond to this message, this great love, this great forgiveness that was lavished on us as the Lamb of God was slain on the cross? This hope that we have in resurrection. On Easter today, we invite you into this way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of death, the way of forgiveness, and the way of resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this story, this old story, a story that at its surface, Lord, can be hard to understand as we think about lambs being slain and um, sacrificial death. And yet we're reminded, Lord, that uh, what you offer in your death is, is forgiveness for us, that you reconcile us to yourself, and that this wasn't just a cheap thing that happens. This is something that costs you greatly because you loved us so much. And Lord, we also know that uh, as your scripture reminds us that, that, that the pain that we experience here of things that have happened to us, of things that we've done, that suffering is redemptive. That there's hope for tomorrow because there's hope in the resurrection. It allows us to travel through life much differently here. Lord, I just pray that you would stir in our hearts today the reality of the cross, the reality of the resurrection, that you would call us home. Lord, we love you and we're grateful for life that is abundant and eternal. In your son's name we pray. Amen.